to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. documentary that came out that was called Soundtrack for a Revolution. And this documentary traces the history of the civil rights movement, but it does so in a very interesting way. Because the the way in which this documentary traces the, the development of the civil rights movement was through the music of the movement. All through the history of the civil rights movement, uh, those who participated, the, the workers in the civil rights movement, they sang these songs, these, these spirituals and these hymns during the course of their struggle for justice. And these songs really did serve as a soundtrack for the unfolding drama because they sang these songs as they prayed for change. They sang these songs as they labored for justice. They sang these songs as they suffered loss. They sang these songs even in the face of terrorism and death. Dr. King himself said that these freedom songs, quote, played a strong and vital role in the struggle. These songs, as he put it, gave the people new courage and a sense of unity. They kept alive a faith, he says and a radiant hope in the future during the most trying times. Dr. King called these songs the soul of the movement. But what I found most compelling about the documentary was that in the the development of the documentary, they don't just have old black and white footage of, of the people of the past singing these songs. They actually have new contemporary artists that take up those old songs and sing them in in a modern-day vernacular. Artists such as John Legend, The Roots, and Wyclef. They take these songs and they made them their own for a new moment. They took the original songs of the movement and they bring them into the here and now to carry on the work. Now, if you can understand something of what I just described about that documentary, then you can understand what is happening at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Luke is telling a story, just like all the gospel writers, like all the evangelists. He's telling the story of Jesus. He's giving his own rendition of the life and the work of Jesus. But what's interesting about Luke's gospel is that he starts his gospel off by giving us a sort of soundtrack. He gives us a series of selected songs that we are invited to not only examine, but to join in. He gives us the soundtrack for a revolution. A revolution that God has introduced into the world through the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ. A revolution to overthrow the tyrannical forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And something we need to appreciate is that this revolution is a revolution against the revolution. Ever since Genesis 3, humanity revolted against God and his kingdom. But what God did in the sending of his son is he sent the revolution against the revolution to make everything right again. 
And all God's people are invited to take these songs at the very beginning of Luke's gospel and to make them personal, to make them their own. The Lord would have us sing these songs as we pray for change. He would have us sing these songs as we labor for justice. He would have us sing these songs as we suffer loss, and he would even have us sing these songs as we face terror and death. And here's why. These songs give God's people a new sense of courage and unity. These songs are all about a living faith and a radiant hope that can carry us through our most trying times. So today we come to the first of these songs. This is going to be an Advent series like we do every year. If you're new with us, what our network pastors do is we all do one marathon day. So right after this, I'll be jetting out of here to go preach at Grace Meridian Hill, and we'll preach at Grace Downtown this evening. And then next week, we will have, you will get experience the pastors of our network each exploring one of these songs that's in Luke's gospel. And today, we're going to look at the Magnificat, Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord. It's the very beginning of Mary's song, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to draw out the, 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 the thematic development of this text by looking at the two motivations that drove Mary, the mother of Jesus, to her song. These are our two points. We're going to look at divine consideration and divine liberation. Those are our two points, and I think these are the two things that drive this song, that produce this song. So let's look at our first point as we take a look at divine consideration. Mary's song develops one of the most significant themes throughout Scripture. And that significant theme throughout Scripture is known as the Great Reversal. So the Lord in creation establishes the world and establishes the way that things ought to be. But in Genesis 3, if you can just think about it, everything got flipped upside down. Everything got turned topsy-turvy. And the way that the world operates after Genesis 3, though it may seem normal to us, is actually upside down. And one of the themes of scripture is that there will be a great reversal where God restores things, where he turns things right side up once again. And what often happened among God's people is that they would find themselves in a state of suffering because of righteousness. And God said, there's a reversal coming. You might be on the bottom now, but there's a reversal coming. God's people would often find themselves in a situation of poverty due to injustice. And God said, this may be the situation right now, but there is a reversal coming. You see, every way in which the world has been turned topsy-turvy, no matter how normal it may seem in everyday life, the Lord knows the way it's supposed to be, and he's inviting his people to trust in his word that there will be a great reversal. And, and Mary picks this up in verse 48, if you take a look at the text. Look at what causes Mary to burst into praise. The text says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, let, let, let's, let's hear how a different translation puts it. He has had regard for the humble estate of his servant. Another translation says, He took notice of his servant. 
But my favorite rendition of this little section of scripture, it comes from the message. And this is how the message reflects this text. God took one good look at me and look what happened. The first thing that causes Mary's heart to leap is that God noticed her. He noticed. She was a woman in a man's world, but God noticed her. She was a Jew in a Gentile's world, but God noticed her. She was poor in a rich man's world, but God noticed her. She was oppressed in a tyrant's world, but God noticed her. And doesn't this meet us in one of the most significant places of human longing? How much of our lives and our mental bandwidth are devoted to just getting someone to notice? It's a feature of modern life, self-making and projecting identities into the world to be recognized. It's a deeply human thing. And it begins early. Babies crying. They want to be noticed and fed. Toddlers bringing their artwork to us. Look at what I've done, mommy, daddy. They want to be noticed. It moves on to junior high and high school where, where young people want to have the freshest styles. They don't want to be caught with some outdated stuff. Why? Because they want to be noticed. And then we go off to college and we try to get degrees and, and get good jobs. And when we're in that job, we try to perform our work well so that our boss will notice. And then as we look at the next stage of life, we date and try to think about the possibility of family. And, and as we're searching for a special person, we want to be noticed. And once you're in it, a little pro tip, fellas, if your wife comes up and says, do you notice anything different? You better find something quick, fast, and in a hurry. Because she wants to be noticed. People dress up in tuxedos and ball gowns and they eat rubber chicken all because someone is going to be noticed. It's so human, right? We, we want to be noticed. We, we don't just want it. We long for it. We need to be noticed. And one of the greatest sources of heartache in this world, in our culture, in this moment, is, is the feeling that you're invisible, that you're not seen, that you're not noticed. To feel like you go unnoticed by the people around you. They don't see you. They don't get you. They don't understand. People have taken their own lives because they couldn't stand the pain of feeling invisible. People have described the difficulty of aging as the feeling of being invisible. And I, I, I remember reading uh, a piece where an actor who is preparing for a film role in which they will play a person experiencing homelessness actually goes undercover for just one day. And this is how she describes her experience, and I quote. It's an extended quote, but it's, it's, it's worth hearing her experience. This is what she says. When I passed people, they would intentionally look away. I passed an outdoor patio of a bustling coffee shop with well-dressed, laughing colleagues, young mothers, and laptop-laden college students. Not one look. 
Each step, I grew more surprised that not one person would look at me with concern, offer me something to eat, or a hot cup of coffee. I longed for connection, but not one person would connect with me in any way. I simply couldn't believe no one would acknowledge me in any way. Surely someone would stop to either say hello, hand me a dollar, or ask if I needed information on local shelters. That didn't happen. How quickly you begin to feel like a non-person, a waste of flesh. It is physically painful. Can it be that no one really cares? If I felt this bad in a few hours, I cannot begin to comprehend days, weeks, or years of this. Some of you know this very pain firsthand. And I want you to hear that we grieve that with you. It pains us that that has been your experience, but it doesn't just pain us. We want to be a part of changing that, at least here in Northeast D.C. This is part of the pain and the longing for recognition. But Mary, if you see the text, Mary's confident that the great reversal is coming. And she would have us know that God notices that God has regard for us. And this is an amazingly gracious and humbling truth when you consider how often God goes unrecognized by us. We may feel unrecognized by others, but think about how often God goes unrecognized by us. How often do we fail to have regard for him? In all of our pride, we fail to notice his truth. In all of our grasping for control, we fail to notice his wise and sovereign rule. In all of our greed and callousness, we fail to notice his generosity and blessing. In all of our accomplishments, we often fail to notice his animating spirit that created and produced the achievement. All of this, and I could go on, is the bad news about us. That's the bad news about us. We are not a people that notices. We not only fail to notice our fellow human beings, fellow image bearers, we, we fail to notice God. And one of the reasons why we fail to notice our neighbors is because it started with failing to notice God. But even though that is the bad news about us, the good news is that even when we failed to notice God, God has never failed to notice us. And all through history... He has gone to great lengths to convince us of this gospel truth. He looked on Adam in his sin and clothed him. He looked on Abraham in his despair and blessed him. He looked on Joseph in his prison and promoted him. He looked on Moses in his weakness and used him. He looked on Israel in their slavery and freed them. He looked on Israel in their exile and retrieved them. And at the climax of history, in the fullness of time, God the Father looked on his son in glory and sent him. God has never failed to notice us. And Advent is the proof that God has not only looked upon our humble estate, he has met us in it. It's not just past action for the, the patriarchs and matriarchs of old. God took one look at our sickness 
and sent a healer. God took one look at our affliction and sent a comforter. God took one look at our alienation and sent a mediator. And if you ever have any doubt that God has noticed you, that God cares, that God sees you, take one good look at your creator in the cradle. Take one good look at your master in the manger. Take one good look at your king on the cross. Take one good look at your redeemer in the resurrection. The one sentence testimony of the Christian is that God took one good look at me and look what happened. Look what happened to my guilt, my shame, and my fear. Poof, vanished. Look what happened to my life and my trajectory. Look what happened to my relationships, my work, and my heart when God took one good look at me. The proof that God has graciously looked upon the humble estate of his servants is that he sent his son Jesus Christ in the humble estate of a servant to redeem us. This redemption becomes ours by faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by your promises to do better. Not by your conviction to try harder. The Christian faith is not a try harder message. (laughs) It's not a do better and then God might come around message. This message is purely of grace. And we must never hack at the branch that holds us up. To hack at the branch of grace is to cut the very branch that holds us up. God took one good look at us, and look what happened. Now we can have the confidence of Mary. The great reversal is coming. You might be poor now, but you will inherit the earth. You might be mourning now, but your mourning will turn to dancing. You might be in the place of humiliation right now, but God will exalt you all by faith in the Lord Jesus. We are blessed in him, and he has done great things for us. Through union with Christ, we can sing Mary's song. But there's another motif that leads Mary to sing, and that leads us to our second point, divine liberation. Now, in order to understand or or really appreciate What's going on in this song of Mary? We need to think a little bit about the context in which she offered up this song. In the second century BC, the Jewish people fought courageously to maintain their cultural and religious heritage in the face of deep persecution that was surrounding them. They were violently pressured into just adopting Greek culture. If you can remember back to your history classes, this was the process of Hellenism, okay? The Hellenization of the world due to Alexander the Great taking over the known world. He was spreading Greek culture all over the world, and everywhere he took his kingdom, he pressured people to assimilate their culture. And when that came to Israel, they were pressured, and the fight cost them dearly, but they ended up winning a major victory through the Maccabean leaders of the time, the the Maccabees, right? 
they were the leaders of the Jewish community that helped to uh, lead out in the war against this unjust persecution on their culture and their faith. And in this battle, they rededicated the temple, which is what is celebrated today as Hanukkah. And they enjoyed a brief period of independence. Now, as Americans, we, we resonate with a love of independence. And it's like nearly impossible for us to imagine what it feels like to be stripped of your liberties, to, to experience the indignity of your human agency and liberty being taken. But after this brief season of independence, all of the hopes of the Jewish people were dashed when Rome swept in just a few decades later. And they once again found their community living under the oppression of foreign rulers. They lived under heavy taxation and daily intimidation at the hands of the Roman Empire. And there was a diversity of Jewish response. Some in the Jewish community said, it's time to go to war. And others said, man, we, we might just have to assimilate. And still others said, we need to wait for Messiah. They embraced the waiting. And this is what is reflected in the heart of Mary in this song. She embraced what we might call today an Advent spirit. She embraced the waiting. She didn't dumb down the tension. She, she, didn't, she didn't just play like everything was nice right now in the moment, but she was able to see beyond. She had a different horizon than this worldly, this moment kind of horizons. She had an eternal kind of horizon. And that's what makes the shift in verse 51, if you look at it, so stark. In the context of political, socioeconomic, and religious oppression, Mary announces a future vision of justice that will be ushered in with the coming of Messiah. And what's interesting, if you look at this text, it's what biblical scholars call something that is proleptic which is to say she speaks about something in the future as if it's already happened. She is so confident. Her faith is so dense with, with trust in the Lord and his promises and what he has said that she speaks about a future event as if it's already a done deal. And we, as we come to texts like these, we have to be careful that we don't spiritualize this passage. That is a, an ancient mistake uh, that the church corrected. That ancient mistake was known as Gnosticism, which was simply a, an outlook that said what really is important is the spiritual, the immaterial. Don't worry about material realities. Don't worry about material goods and material life. And what that led to was a devaluing of all the things that happen in the right now physical realities. And so that that spiritualizing texts like this lead you to say, oh, he's not talking about the, the physically poor. It's talking about the spiritually poor. And what I'm suggesting to you is that's a false choice. It's both and. How could it be that God cares only about the, the immaterial poverty and does not care about image bearers who are languishing for a lack of resources while others have abundance that they keep to themselves? That's not God's vision. God is not settled with that. He's not okay with that, and we shouldn't be either. 
This is important in terms of the way we work out our faith. Every, it matters. We must not embrace false dichotomies or a false dualism. This text is politically and socially revolutionary, but in the most kingdom-centered ways. And as believers who live in a democratic, democratic society, we must be careful that we are not conserving ways of being that God is judging. And we must be careful that we're not pursuing a kind of progress that moves further away from the ethics and the spirit of the kingdom. And in order to stay tuned in in the right way in our culture and context, we have to keep two things in mind. First, the Luke-Acts connection. If you ever wanted to know what it is that Luke intended in displaying the teachings of, of his gospel, all you need to do is see part two of his work, volume two of a two-volume work, which is the book of Acts. And you see the church actually dealing in the physical, material, and the spiritual. It's both and. We see that in the church. And we are meant to take our cues from that teaching in the scriptures. The first century church audience heard it and lived it that way. They, they would have heard a distinct invitation to faithful participation in this revolution. They knew they had a role to play in revealing a new social ethic and a, and a new revolutionary set of values. They were no longer to play by the oppressive rules, the status quo of the day. They were to be a countercultural and cross-cultural people. And it came with great costs, but they were formed for this vision. This shaped the discipleship categories of the first century church, and it should shape our discipleship categories as well. What do you think of when you think of a robust disciple? Is the first thought primarily intellectual and, and oriented to how much theology and Bible one knows? Is it oriented to practices? How are you oriented? I, what I want us to do is orient to this life that is in Christ, the fullness of it, and not to narrow it down or trim it, but to try and live into its full nature and not just try to isolate it down to one thing that we are particularly good at or oriented to. It's always going to stretch us. It's always going to call us into discomforts. It's always going to humble us, this life to which we're called. It always forces us to ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And the quick follow-up question to that is, do I really want to follow Jesus? Really? With verses 54 to 55, the final mention of God's promise to Abraham comes through, in which blessing goes out to the whole world through his family, and we are again invited to participate. This is how the message puts that sec this, these two verses. He embraced his chosen child, Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies, piled them high. It's exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham and right up to now. Now, I know how easy it is to grow hopeless and cynical and resigned and to give in to the status quo that we face in the world because we're exhausted of it. But this text doesn't give us an out. It doesn't give us an exit strategy. It gives us the means of perseverance. It gives us hope. It gives us stability. That takes us beyond an individualized spirituality 
into a more communal dynamic. And we must believe the gospel and fearlessly participate in these spheres of life and, and vocation with this distinctly Christian ethic and this kingdom vision. Because God piles on the mercies. He piles them high. <laughs> every day, every morning. So put that together with the fact that you wake up to new mercies every morning. Every morning he loads us up to live into this life. The scriptures very clearly say that we love because he first loved us. But continue out that thought. We must labor for justice because we have been justified. We must participate in liberating the oppressed. Why? Because we were the oppressed who were liberated. We must hold up the dignity of all peoples because God dignified our humanity through an incarnation and a restoration. We do great things for others. Why? Because he's done great things for us. What, 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 what illustrates this life that we're talking about here? I think this illustrates this life. If you recall the basic framework of the Underground Railroad, what happened was that there were people who broke free of antebellum slavery, and they could have enjoyed their freedom by themselves in the North, but they had a better and more beautiful vision because they could not rest content with their freedom in the North while their beloved still languished in antebellum slavery. And so what they did is they began to take these dangerous journeys to go back in that place. They were exposed again to the possibility of being wounded and harmed and killed because it was so important to them that they fight for the freedom and the liberation of their family, their brothers and sisters, their friends and neighbors. That is one of the most beautiful stories out of a very dark era in our nation's history. And what I'm saying to you is this. Salvation is not a gift that is meant to be enjoyed as we sit back and, and rest content with the, the sufferings of our neighbors and the blindness of our neighbors or the ways that they're harming themselves and don't even realize it. The ways in which they're trying to get life out of things that can't give it. When the faith really gets a hold of your heart, when, when, when you get the preciousness of the reality that God took one good look at you and look what happened, that moves you. And it makes us begin to ask the question, what might happen in our neighborhood if we take one good look at our neighbors? What might happen for them? I think salvation can happen for them. I think community can happen for them. I think restoration can happen for them. I think hope in a future can happen for them. I think transformation can happen for all of us because of living into this message and God's grace being all over it. Don't you see? Advent is meant to cultivate within us the right kinds of discontent so that we will not be okay with the things that are so evil and broken in the world that we will not adjust to injustice. So the question I want to leave you with is what might it look like if in your life there were no invisible people? If no one was see-through to you? Who might be uh, in a situation where you've been passing them by and you need to now notice them? Who may you be passing by who needs to be noticed? 
Look around. Where do you see captives, whether spiritual or material or both? And what might it mean for you to work for their liberation, for their true freedom? Where do you see God at work? And how might you participate in that work? That can look, I hope you hear a lot of freedom in that. That can look any number of ways. That can take, take shape through any number of vocations. That's, that's the invitation. So we're invited into repentance and newness of life. And we're invited to join Mary's freedom song, revolting against the effects of the curse with this hope, confident that God will help us in remembrance of his mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.